This morning, we turn to a single verse, and it is Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. That is the single verse which will serve as the text for our sermon this morning. I could think of no other verse, no other passage in the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, which is how this book begins. I could think of no other verse that points so clearly to the Lord Jesus because in Song of Songs, chapter two, verse four, we have a woman, the voice is feminine, thinking about her lover's successful pursuit of her. And this morning, I want us to think about each clause of this single verse, about how it it describes beautifully a man's successful pursuit of his bride. But preeminently, then, I want us to reflect on how this verse points clearly and beautifully to the one great lover of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his marvelous, his glorious pursuit of his bride, the church. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Song of Songs begins with the bride confessing her love. Song of Songs chapter one, verse two, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. He reciprocates same chapter behold you are beautiful my love behold you are beautiful and she echoes his sentiments behold you are beautiful my beloved truly beautiful the beauty of this woman from her lover's perspective is difficult even to describe I'm reminded here of William Shakespeare's sonnet 17. I thought of trying to pass it on as love poetry that I penned to my wife while we were courting, but you would know better. If I could write the beauty of your eyes and in fresh number, number all your graces, the age to come would say such poet lies, such heavenly, this poet lies, such heavenly touches ne'er touched earthly faces. If I could with words describe the beauty of your face, then people who didn't see you would read what I wrote and they would say, this man is a liar. Surely no one is that beautiful. And when young couples are deeply in love and they're cooing at each other, though sometimes it is nauseating, we must all agree that it is marvelous, and we recognize that such deep love cannot remain at a distance forever. On the contrary, the magnet of this attraction eventually brings two people together. And here in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4, the bride is reflecting on her lover's successful pursuit of her. He has brought me to the banqueting house. She remembers how he wooed her. She's either reflecting metaphorically on the banqueting house 
as the place of their own intimate celebration in marriage, or she's speaking quite literally. He brought me to the place of feasting, perhaps on their wedding day. And such is the pattern of romantic love. A man finds a woman beautiful and she finds him attractive. And they do not want to remain at a distance forever, but instead they want to seal their love, both publicly and privately. He brought me to the banqueting house. Well, when the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 is talking to married couples, husband and wife, about their love for each other. Paul speaks to husband and wife about Christ and his own love for his bride, the church. And in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians 5.31, the Apostle Paul quotes from Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then Paul says in verse 32, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, if you were unfamiliar with the Old Testament, then you would think that what Paul is doing here is really strange or unusual. Genesis chapter 2 is about a man leaving his parents and taking a wife and clinging to her. How does this relate to Christ and his church? But to those familiar with the Old Testament, then Paul's maneuver here is perfectly explicable and, in fact, exactly what we would expect. The Lord's pursuit of his own people is often portrayed in these romantic terms. The Old Testament regularly describes the God of Israel as a husband to his people. Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. There the Lord says, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth to you, you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God is a husband to his people. But God's people, as the Lord's bride... They, we offer a telling contrast to the woman in Song of Songs. The bride in Song of Songs is both beautiful and faithful. She is wholeheartedly devoted to her man. She is beautiful. Now, I, I can't imagine that any of us has ever said, um, or we've, Maybe if we're quoting Song of Songs, chapter four, verse two, but I, I don't I don't think this is I've not seen this on a greeting card. Your your uh, teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, he says, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips 
are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. What does this mean? Well, it means that this, this, this uh, beloved does not need dental work, right? That's what that means. I look at your teeth and they're lambs and they have pears, right? They, you've got a twin. And so you don't have any holes in your teeth. You haven't lost any of your young, right? This is, look at my mouth. Now, of course, what this tells you is that I have had an orthodontist. That's what that's all that, that tells you. But if you were in the ancient world and you actually came across someone that had straight teeth, it would be remarkable. How lovely. And your, your, um, your, your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. He delights in her. She is beautiful. She is also very devoted. She seeks him during the day. She looks for him in the night at risk to herself. And then in Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6, she says, this is so wonderful. This was another just classic verse if you've, if you've not read the book. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Set me as a seal on your heart. She wants to belong to her lover forever. She is devoted to him. So she is marvelously attractive, beautiful, and she is also faithful. Well, what about the Lord's bride? Unattractive and faithless. Unattractive and faithless. When the Lord wants to describe to his people his relationship with them in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 16, he says, I found you, Ezekiel 16 verse 5. No, I was looking at you. You are discarded. You are discarded, baby girl. Nobody cared about you, but I picked you up. Actually, he says, I said, live. I said, live. And you lived. And then this baby girl under the Lord's tender care becomes a marvelously attractive, beautiful woman. And he takes her as his bride. And how does she respond to his faithful, loving care? Is she faithful in return? Not at all. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 32. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. She is a faithless bride the church. She is faithless to her man. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Now why would the Lord ever want to bring an ugly and faithless bride into his banqueting house. Why would he ever want to do that? And how could he, he even do it if he wanted to? Well, let's take each question in turn. First, 
Ephesians, again, offers us an answer to the question of why. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul begins his letter by rejoicing in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what has the Lord done? Paul says that God chose us in love before the foundation of the world. You may be surprised to learn this morning that God loved you before you loved him. But let me tell you something. God loved you before you were even born, before your grandparents were born. God loved you before he set the sun and the moon and the stars in place. God loved you from all eternity. And he did not choose you because you were beautiful, because he was impressed with your worldly looks or success. On the contrary, he chose to love you because he chose to love you. Paul makes it clear in his uh, first letter to the Corinthians just what kind of people God has chosen. So we see this in the Old Testament. We also see it in the New Far from flattering the recipients of his letter, which you would normally expect someone to do, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, nor were many of noble birth. And then he adds, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Having loved you before you were even born, God chose you in your unattractiveness. He has loved you in spite of your faithfulness, and he has brought you into his banqueting house. Paul's epistles also offer a commentary of how God does this. Again, in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is talking about husband and wives, when he is talking about the result of earthly romantic love, he talks about Jesus and his pursuit of his own bride. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave himself up on the cross for his bride to pay for sins that were hers, not his, so that she would not suffer the penalty of all the wrongs that she had done. But Jesus did not stop there. He wanted not simply to rescue his bride from punishment, but to make her ready for the banqueting house. And so he cleans up his bride. He washes her with his own blood and he clothes her in splendid robes of righteousness so that she can go in to where he is. Christ, the bridegroom, spared no expense 
spared no expense for his wedding day with his bride, the church. Now, in a moment, we will sing the hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. I thought that there were 16 stanzas. Don't worry, we're not singing all 16. But somebody told me after the the 9 a.m. service that he thought that there were something like 19 or 20 stanzas. So our, um, this morning, we're not going to be singing this one particular stanza of The Sands of Time Are Sinking, but um, it's inspired by uh, letters from Samuel Rutherford, who, this year, uh, who died 360 years ago this year. And my favorite stanza is, Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. And one of the benefits of being an associate pastor is that you get a long lead time on when you preach, right? It's not Sunday to Sunday. It's, okay, I'll be preaching. And so I, uh, I have been thinking about this uh, for weeks now. So uh, many of you know, last Monday, we buried a dear friend of mine, and I saw him the Monday before that. And I was thinking about Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4. And I told him of my discovery in studying the passage. What is a banqueting house? Well, in the original language, it's house of wine. It's house of wine. And so when Samuel Rutherford, hundreds of years ago, said he brings a poor vile sinner into his house of wine, he is explicitly referencing Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4. He brings a poor vile sinner into his house of wine. He has brought me to his banqueting house. Well, I shared that with my friend two weeks ago, and the following day he died. He fell asleep in Jesus and his widow to communicate to us that he was with the Lord, texted, he is in his house of wine. Friends, when it comes time for us to die, May we say he brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. Now, we know that not every love works out. We love people and they break our hearts. And three times in Song of Songs, in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 8, verse 4, There are admonitions, there are warnings to the daughters of Jerusalem not to hasten love before the time because we give our hearts to people and they they grieve us deeply. They wound us, don't they? But not this love. Not this love. Christ's love never wounds you. Christ's love is the love that brings you into the house. Of wine. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. His banner over me was love. Now, love is a kind of conquest where the beloved gives herself completely to her lover. But notice here that the banner over, that hangs over their bridal chamber is not victory, but love. A banner both communicates, it communicates to soldiers who they are and what they're fighting for. And the banner also communicates to the other side the same thing, to rival troops. 
There is perhaps no single photograph that speaks to the tenacity of American troops during World War II than the iconic picture of six Marines raising a flag of the United States of America on the top of Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima. Associated Press Joe, photographer Joe Rosenthal snapped the photograph on February 23, 1945, and it appeared in the Sunday papers two days later. But it wasn't until over a month later, on March 26th, I think at 9 a.m. local time, that the island was declared secure. But when those six Marines raised the flag of the United States on a mountain overlooking the island, they were saying something. In advance of ultimate victory, they were saying, this island belongs to the United States of America. The banner over Iwo Jima is the stars and stripes. A banner offers comfort to our friends and defiance against our enemies. It says, we are winning, you are losing, we are here, and we are coming to get you. But notice how in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4, this bride takes militaristic imagery and uses it for a poetic purpose. As Matthew Henry remarks, he brought me in with a banner displayed over my head, not as one he triumphed over, but as one he triumphed in. Not as one he triumphed over, but as one he triumphed in. Yes, Jesus conquers his church. He must do so. He is our king who has to suppress our wicked rebellion against his just rule. He squashes the rebellion. But his banner over us is love. What banner do you think flies over your life this morning? For some of us, our banner is one of success. Maybe we're doing well financially. Perhaps we read the Song of Songs and we go, yeah, that about fits me. I really am that attractive. But what happens when we see the banner of our life in terms of success? Well, number one, we know it's not really true. And to whatever extent it is true, what is pride and lofty thoughts but fear of falling? Fear of failure. If I'm attractive today, will I be tomorrow? What about 10 years from now? If I had a really good financial year last year, well, what about the year ahead? You need to remember this morning that his banner over you is love. His banner over you is love. He does not love you because you are lovely. He loves you and so makes you lovely. Now, some of us have a very different banner. Some of us have, or so we think, maybe the banner over us is too little, too late, washed out, loser. Well, you are just as mistaken about your life as the so-called successful person is about his. You need to be reminded this morning that his banner over you is love. He does not love you 
because you are lovely. He loves you, and so he makes you lovely. Can we live in the truth of that this morning and this week? When I talk to you outside, and you talk to me, and we talk to each other, can we remember that his banner over me is love? Can I remember that his banner over you is love? It ought to change the way we treat each other. This Tuesday, I think it's this Tuesday is April 27th. Is that right? So this Tuesday, April 27th, is the 100th anniversary of John Stott's birth. He was born April 27th, 1921. 100 years ago this month, Stott was a, had a celebrated ministry in London and around the world. He was the author of about 50 books, uh, which have been translated into 65 languages. A single one of those books, Basic Christianity, sold over 25 million copies. He was a chaplain to the Queen of England from 1959 to his retirement in 1991. He stayed preaching at All Souls Langham Place, his church, uh, where he was uh, baptized as a child and where he served as a rector. He was preaching into the 2000s. And even in his 70s and in his 80s, a man who at one time preached to an audience of 18,000 people would go to the back of the church and he would wait for every person who wanted to talk to him, to speak to him. In an age of celebrity pastors where the speaker seems to be helicoptered onto the stage and right after speaking is whisked away by a security detail, here was an old, frail man who knew the queen, who spoke to thousands, had books read by millions, but he spoke to each person one by one. Why? Would he ever do it? Well, he told a study assistant that he would exhort himself with these words. John, Christ died for them. They are therefore infinitely valuable to God. Now you must listen to them. In other words, Stott looked at each person shuffling out of the church and said, His banner over her is love. His banner over him is love. May we treat each other that way. His banner over me is love and you too. Well, let me conclude by uh, telling a story that I once heard. And um, if memory serves, this was presented to me as though it was true, but I am an academic, so I always try to, to find a you know, newspaper report or something, and I couldn't. So I'm going to present this as though it is true, but it may not be true, and so then it's just a story. Um, but I hope it's true, and if it is true, my, my guess is that based on the features of the story, it's probably, uh, and this I have looked up, based on the features of the story, it's probably in the late 1800s or early 1900s. So here we go. A young man angry with his parents, left the family's orange groves in Florida in order to go and find himself. But of course, in trying to find himself, he lost himself completely. And he came to his senses and he knew that he should go home. But the rupture with his parents was so bad that he 
really questioned whether or not they would take him back. And so he wrote a letter home and he said, there's a train that runs by the family land. If you want me back, would you just hang something? You know, hang a sheet, hang a towel from a limb of of an orange tree so that I would know that I could come home again. Well, he took, he wrote the letter, sent it off, and he boarded the train on just the right day. But as he neared his home, he got too scared to look. Would they actually take him back? And so he confided in a fellow passenger, explained the situation, and said, would you, when we go over that hill, I'm going to be closing my eyes. But would you look and would you see if there's a sheet hanging from an orange tree, hanging from a limb of an orange tree? Because that, that's my message that I'll, I'll know I can come home. So the train made its way, climbed the hill. The man had his eyes shut in fear and trepidation. And his fellow passenger said, son, I think you need to look yourself. So he opened his eyes And he looked out and there was something hanging from a limb of every single tree and all the orange trees that he could see. The message was clear. Come home. We want you home. Now, for some of us, we wrongly think that our worthlessness exceeds the love of God. But we are deeply mistaken He is more eager to forgive us. He is more delighted to welcome us home than we are to say sorry and come back. Some of us need to open our eyes this morning and look out and see his banner over you is love. His banner over you is love. Jesus' parable of the prodigal son of which this story is a modern parallel, touches our hearts so deeply because we both yearn for this kind of love and forgiveness and we're afraid that we don't deserve it. Well, the message of of the gospel of good news in Jesus is that you don't deserve it. You're not lovely. And yet... He loves you and he forgives you and he did all the work necessary to make you worthy of his love. And if you don't do something to earn God's favor and love, then guess what? There's nothing that you can do to make you lose his favor and love because he did all the work. And he chose you in love before the foundation of the world. You can rest and receive Christ alone for your salvation. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us with an everlasting love that you love your people, that we have been faithless to you, 
we are unattractive to you and to each other and even to ourselves. But you have brought us to the banqueting table. You've brought us into your house of wine and your banner over us is love. May we rejoice and feel the great freedom of knowing that Christ loves us and gave himself up for us. And it's in your strong and powerful name we pray. Amen.